Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I'm a huge Friends fan because it's hilarious. So I actually, when I was growing up, I didn't have a t- I didn't have cable in my bedroom. So I had a DVD box sets, and all I watched was Friends, literally on repeat, over and over and over again. Ross, Rachel, Monica, Chandler, Joey, and Phoebe. Could they be any more popular? Uh, I love the comedy. I feel it's timeless. Even 25 years later, I can still binge watch episodes now and laugh just as hard as I would 10 years ago. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen an episode, they still make me laugh. Like, I know the joke is coming, I know what the punchline is, but it still makes me laugh. That's hard to do. So how did a show about 20-somethings in New York become a global phenomenon and a certified classic? I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're taking a look back at a TV show that has come to symbolize the 90s. And we'll try to understand why, despite its flaws, the show continues to capture the hearts of fans around the world. This is the one about Friends. Kevin Bright, David Crane, and Marta Kaufman were in their office at Warner Brothers when they came up with the idea that would eventually become Friends. Another show they created, called Family Album, had just been cancelled by CBS, and their future was uncertain. The three ex-New Yorkers were nostalgic for the days before they came to Hollywood, when they were just out of college and felt a little lost. But not alone. They had a great group of friends going through the same thing and they, they became family. They remembered it as a time when their future was uncertain, just like now. And they thought, well, everybody knows that feeling. Out of that feeling came a seven-page pitch in December 1993 for a show called Insomnia Cafe. It was a show about six people in their 20s who hang out at a Manhattan coffee shop. The pitch went something like this. It's about sex, love, relationship, careers, a time in your life when everything is possible, which is really exciting and really scary. It's about searching for love and commitment and security, and a fear of love and commitment and security. And it's about friendship, because when you're young and single and in the city, your friends are your family. NBC liked the idea, and they ordered a pilot episode. Kaufman and Crane wrote it in just three days. In an interview with the Television Academy Foundation, Crane said it was just another pilot, and like most pilots, there was a pretty good chance it would get cancelled. So they didn't fully flesh out the details of the show's characters. They figured they could do that later, if the show got picked up. In her recent book, I'll Be There For You, author Kelsey Miller says there was a lot of buzz about the show right from the beginning. There was a lot of attention, um, and people were really excited about it. Because at the time, everybody was looking for, like, the Gen X comedy. Everybody was looking for that, and nobody was hitting it right, you know? And this show came along, and it's super, super low concept, and it, it really had to be well cast. And, of course, it was miraculously cast. You have this cast that's, you know, like lightning in a bottle, as everybody said. And not only are they very good at this particular kind of comedy, but they're very good at working together. Okay, so let's talk about that cast. 
Putting together this magical combination took quite a bit of work and quite a bit of luck. David Schwimmer is the only cast member who the writers already had their eye on before they started writing the pilot. Schwimmer had auditioned for another sitcom that Crane and Kaufman were working on before Friends. He didn't get that job, but the writers loved him. So when they sat down to write the Friends pilot, they actually created the Ross character based on his performance at that audition. Ironically, when they contacted Schwimmer, he said no at first. He was just coming off a bad experience on another sitcom with Henry Winkler called Monty, and he did not want to do any more sitcoms. But he was a theater kid, and he loved ensemble acting, and so that helped him to eventually change his mind. Originally for Phoebe, the creators wanted Ellen. Yes, the Ellen. But when she turned them down, casting director Ellie Kanner turned to Lisa Kudrow. Kanner said in an interview with the Huffington Post in 2015 that Kudrow was a no-brainer for the role of Phoebe because of her work on the popular TV show Mad About You. As you may or maybe you don't remember, Kudrow had a reoccurring role as Ursula on Mad About You before she was cast in Friends. To solve the problem of having her on two shows set in Manhattan that aired on the same night on the same network, they used some sitcom magic, and they made Phoebe Ursula's twin sister. Matthew Perry was one of a few actors that creators had their eye on for the role of Chandler. Perry would have jumped at the chance, but regretfully, he was tied up with a pilot for a Fox sitcom about airport baggage handlers at the Los Angeles airport in 2194. The role of Chandler was offered to actor Craig Birko, a friend of Perry's who he helped coach for the audition. Birko, however, turned it down. Eventually, Matthew Perry was released from that Fox pilot and was able to join the cast. When Courtney Cox auditioned, she wanted to play Monica, But that's not what creators had in mind for her. They wanted Cox as Rachel. Co-creator David Crane told Vanity Fair in 2012 that they initially wrote the role of Monica with the voice of Reality Bites star Janine Garofalo in mind. Crane said they wanted Monica to be darker and edgier and snarkier. And they already had Nancy McKeon, who played Joe on The Facts of Life, read for the role, and she was great. It wasn't until Courtney Cox nailed her audition and brought a whole bunch of other colors to the role of Monica that they decided, week after week, that would be a lovelier place for the character to go. When Jennifer Aniston read for the role of Rachel, co-creator David Crane said she was head and shoulders the best one. But like Perry, Aniston wasn't available for the role. She had already been cast in another sitcom called Muddling Through, set to air in the summer of 1994. If the network decided to pick it up for a second season, Aniston would be obligated to continue work on that show. The producers of Friends liked the chemistry so much between Aniston and Schwimmer that they decided to take a gamble. They convinced Aniston to film both shows, and so she did. And thankfully for the Friends crew, the gamble paid off. Muddling Through was cancelled after the first season, 
and Aniston was good to go on Friends. Joey was the last role cast. They had seen Hank Azaria and almost cast Vince Vaughn, but Matt LeBlanc was able to put a different spin on Joey than what Crane and Kaufman originally intended when he auditioned. LeBlanc made the choice to play Joey as dim-witted, even though they hadn't written it that way. Kaufman and Crane loved it. But they were hesitant because LeBlanc was young and fairly inexperienced. That's when the head of casting at Warner Brothers stepped in and said, this is an actor who will get better every episode. And so he got the part. With all the friends in place, they had their first table read at NBC in early 1994. And those who were there said the chemistry could be felt right away. It doesn't always translate to screen that way, but in this case, they were all pretty excited. Shooting began that summer, but suddenly NBC got a bit nervous. Executives now worried that the coffee house setting was too hip, and they wanted the Central Perk coffee shop to be swapped out for a diner, like on Seinfeld. Starbucks wasn't really a thing yet, and the network worried the audience wouldn't understand coffee house culture. In an interview with the Television Academy, Kevin Bright said the creators pushed back and they got their way with one minor concession. The network wanted the color of that famous couch changed. It went from beige to burnt orange. The network was also worried the cast was too young. NBC wanted an older character who could give sage advice to the kids. Writer David Crane told Dateline that they tried it. At one point, there was a draft of an early episode of Friends that had a cop in it, Pat the Cop. You know the kids' book, Pat the Bunny? Well, Friends almost had Pat the Cop. Thankfully, NBC dropped the idea. But there was one more lingering problem. In the pilot episode, Monica sleeps with Paul the Wine Guy on their first date, and then she gets dumped. In an interview with the Television Academy Foundation, Crane and Kaufman tell the story of an NBC executive who was worried about Monica sleeping with a man on her first date. Crane said the executive said, doesn't that say she's a whore? Eventually, the executive came to terms with Monica's transgression, but only because she ended up feeling hurt and humiliated afterward. He felt she got what she deserved. Crane and Kaufman were livid, but they believed in the script and they wanted to get the pilot shot without making any changes to Monica's storyline, so they allowed the comment. Crane and Kaufman recall in the interview with the Academy that this executive still worried about how Monica would be perceived, and he forced them to hand out a survey to test audiences asking if the storyline was offensive or should be changed. The survey asked, what do you think of Monica for sleeping with a man on the first date? Is she A, a whore, B, a slut, C, too easy? Crane says the audience responded with a resounding, who cares, we like her. Despite these reservations, the network must have had a pretty good feeling about Friends. They placed it in the primo 8.30 spot on Thursday night between Mad About You and Seinfeld. It was the beginning of the must-see TV era. And it paid off. It was a hit. The pilot was seen by nearly 22 million people. 
viewers were falling in love with the Friends gang and their crazy shenanigans. It was simple, clean fun. It reflected real life, but a real life that was better than yours. Some critics weren't as impressed, though. A review from 1994 in the Washington Post called it a 30-minute commercial for Dockers or Ikea or light beer, except smuttier. The more popular it got, the more it was mocked for being unrealistic. Everyone was just too darn pretty. And why were they never at work? And there was also the issue of diversity, or lack of it. Something Oprah brought up when the cast appeared on her show in March 1995. Oprah coyly said, I'd like y'all to get a black friend. Maybe I can stop by. Outside of that one comment by Oprah, the rest of the show was basically a love fest. Kelsey Miller says the cast had no idea how popular they had become until that moment on The Oprah Show. And you have to remember, of course, it's 1994-95, nobody's going on Twitter every single day and looking at audience reaction. And when you are a young cast of a new show, you're really focused on just, like, not getting cancelled. Well, they didn't get cancelled. They were picked up for another season, and in the meantime, the show took off in summer reruns. Millions of people who missed it the first time around tuned in over the summer to see what the fuss was about. It made Friends the number one show on TV in the summer of 1995. And then, of course, the theme song certainly, certainly helped because that was like a big song of the summer. And then, of course, the Rachel haircut started to take off right around that time as well. So it was kind of like every time you walked out the door or got in your car, Friends was kind of in your face. And, of course, it hadn't gotten totally overexposed yet at that point, so people were still really, really excited. The show's theme song, I'll Be There For You, was co-written by Friends creators David Crane and Marta Kaufman. It was originally under one minute long, but as popularity for the show exploded, it was re-recorded by the Rembrandts as a three-minute pop song. It stayed at number one on the Billboard charts for 11 weeks. It was also included in the Friends original TV soundtrack, which cracked the top 50 charts in the U.S., the soundtrack also included bits of spoken dialogue from the show's first season and music that was used on the show or inspired by the show. Friends' popularity continued to grow in season two. By the time Ross and Rachel finally got together, it had exploded into a cultural phenomenon. It hit a high point in January 96 when Ross's ex-wife got remarried to a woman. The episode was called The One with the Lesbian Wedding, and Friends was number one that week as 32 million people watched the first lesbian wedding on primetime TV. It generated a bunch of press before it even aired because the officiant at the wedding was none other than Candace Gingrich, an LGBTQ advocate and the sister of U.S. House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who was a Republican opposed to gay marriage. You know, nothing makes God happier than when two people, any two people, come together in love. Friends, family, we're gathered here today to join Carol and Susan in holy matrimony. A same-sex wedding on TV was a bold move in the 90s. 
This episode aired a year before Ellen's coming out episode and two years before Will and Grace premiered on NBC. And in fact, two NBC affiliates refused to air the episode. But Friends wasn't entirely waving the rainbow flag. In fact, one of the show's writers, David Crane, is quoted in the official Friends Till the End companion book that they weren't trying to make a point with the episode. It wasn't political. For Crane, gay people have lives, like everybody else, and weddings are a part of those lives, and they just thought it was good material. Kelsey Miller says the episode was a really fascinating combination of envelope pushing and fear. Because, yes, you do have two women getting married, and you do have Candace Gingrich officiating the wedding, but you also see an exact replica of a heterosexual wedding with some notable exceptions. Including the fact that they're wearing these very, very traditional gowns, but they're not white because they can't, you know, can't be too close. They're not, you know, that kind of thing. One of them is being walked down the aisle by like a member of the military. One of their parents is like in full Navy garb. Um, And then you have things like the fact that they couldn't kiss at their wedding. And of course, that was not, you know, that wasn't a network decision. As far as I know, based on my research, that was something that the producers of Friends really did not feel they could do. In recent years, as Friends has made its comeback thanks to Netflix, there has been a lot of discussion about whether the show was homophobic or just a product of its time. In 2011, filmmaker Tiana Mala uploaded a short film to YouTube that got quite a bit of attention. The film is called Homophobic Friends, and it's an edited compilation of nearly every gay joke made on Friends. It's almost an hour long. I think it's sort of, it's a little, it's letting people off the hook a little too easily when we just say it was a product of its time, because it is. But that was a time that was a lot less inclusive, a lot less representative, and a lot less concerned with uh, diverse or respectful representation. And that's what I mean when I say that Friends has become a historical marker in many ways, because when you you can really look back and see how much things have changed. And of course, we still have quite a long way to go in terms of fair and respectful representation. But things have changed drastically since Friends was on the air. By the end of season two, Friends had gone from a cultural phenomenon to a national epidemic, thanks in part to a bad case of overexposure. The cast members were everywhere. Courtney Cox was on the cover of People Magazine's annual 50 Most Beautiful People issue. Matt LeBlanc and David Schwimmer were in their first major films. Jennifer Aniston and Lisa Kudrow did a Got Milk ad together. And Aniston and Matthew Perry appeared in a super cheesy instructional video for Windows 95. Ah, Microsoft's fifth floor. Ladies' modems, children's shareware, and our bridal peripheral salon. Wow. Taskbars and email and shortcuts, oh my. Taskbars and email and shortcuts, oh my. Taskbars and email and shortcuts, Then in January 96, friends signed on to a $30 million ad campaign for Diet Coke. It was a huge deal on a level never seen before. In addition to old-school product placement on the show, Diet Coke produced calling cards, sponsored viewing parties on college campuses, 
and one of the earliest internet campaigns on Diet Coke's website. And then, of course, there was the contest. You might remember the phrase, who's going to drink the Diet Coke? The TV ads explained that someone stole a Diet Coke from Monica and Rachel's apartment. Match the name under the cap with the friend's character who drinks the Diet Coke in the Diet Coke commercial each week, and you're a winner. To be part of the contest, each week, viewers were instructed to grab a Diet Coke and tune in to watch Friends. During the show, a Diet Coke ad would air with one of the characters drinking a bottle. If the name under your cap matched the character in the ad, then you won a prize. It culminated with an ad on Super Bowl Sunday and a grand prize trip to watch a taping of Friends in Los Angeles. That final ad ran in an hour-long Friends episode after the game, and it revealed that Rachel was the Diet Coke thief. The episode was a watershed moment for the show. According to the Nielsen Company, nearly 60 million people watched the episode called The One After the Super Bowl. And to this day, it remains the most watched Super Bowl lead-out program in television history. But it came with a price. Critics called the Super Bowl episode a shameless cash grab. The Chicago Tribune dubbed it the one where the show crosses the line from promiscuity into prostitution. At the end of season two, Friends still had great ratings, but the numbers had started to drop. According to author Kelsey Miller, NBC put the word out that there would be no more endorsement deals for the time being and a lot less press for the actors. And, and the producers, you know, and the writers as well, really recognized that, like, what was happening was not sustainable and it wasn't what they set out to do. So they pulled back, and I think season three is when Friends becomes good. Season three was a landmark season for Friends for a few reasons. For one, the show made a turn towards a significantly greater serialized format. But also, it's when the cast members began negotiating their salaries together. The bond between the six actors was tight, on and off the set. And right from the beginning, too, thanks to Courtney Cox. And so she was the one who went to them when they were shooting the pilot and said, listen, you know, I did Seinfeld, and one thing that really helped is the fact that they give each other notes, which is usually just not okay, you know, on a set. You don't do that with your peers. And so, but she said, it really helps because it makes them, makes them all better. So if we can all agree to give each other notes, if you give me notes, then, then I will definitely do, I will follow your lead. I will give it a shot. And I think that gave everybody permission to really, to do that. This team mentality came into play in season three when it was time for the cast to negotiate new contracts. Season one, they all reportedly made $22,500 an episode. Season two salaries varied for cast members, with David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston reportedly making the most at about $40,000 an episode. When it came time to negotiate salaries before season three, Schwimmer's agents were pushing him to go for more money. But he had another idea. In a book written by former NBC president Warren Littlefield called Top of the Rock, Inside the Rise and Fall of Must-See TV, Schwimmer is quoted as saying he went to his castmates and suggested they all ask for the same raise. $100,000 an episode across the board. 
plus a share of revenue when the show went into syndication. It worked. In the end, they signed for four more seasons. Everyone would make the same amount, starting at $75,000 an episode in season three and ending at $120,000 an episode by season six. Miller says this deal changed everything. It set a precedent for future negotiations on other shows, and it solidified Friends' staying power. As long as Friends was popular, they had job security if they worked as a unit. As individuals, producers could fire any one of them, but they could never fire all six. They now fully realized the power they had as a group, and they agreed that from then on, that it was one for all and all for one when it came to money, publicity, or the continuation of the show. Even when it came to awards, they would all submit themselves in the same category, supporting, not leading. By the time the show ended, the Friends actors were making a reported $1 million each per episode. It was the most expensive half hour on television at the time. Kelsey Miller says the money made by the cast has become part of the show's legacy. And it's an incredible legacy. As of 2018, it's reported the show brings in about $1 billion per year for Warner Brothers. That's right, $1 billion. For the cast, it means each member receives $20 million per year, all because of that one incredible decision. By the end of season three, the impact of Friends was being felt around the world. Friends-type shows popped up in other countries. Britain had Coupling, India had Hello Friends, and Spain had Seven Vidas. Miller says coffee house culture also took off. Everybody wanted the big giant coffee cups. Everybody was looking for like a coffee house where somebody was playing a guitar. And you'll even see it in, in countries that are traditionally like tea drinking cultures like England and, and India. Um, and Russia, um, the coffee became like kind of like the chic thing to drink. This cultural phenomenon is called the Friends Effect. It started in the 90s, and thanks to reruns and streaming platforms, it's still being felt today. First, there was the haircut, the Rachel. It became one of the most imitated looks of the 90s. Watch any movie that was filmed between, say, 1994 and 1998, and you're likely going to see a version of the Rachel. If you didn't have it, you probably wanted it. Jennifer Aniston's shaggy, layered hairstyle was an instant hit when the show debuted. Women around the world, including celebrities like Meg Ryan and Tyra Banks, marched into hair salons and asked for the cut. Aniston has said she didn't really like the bouncy cut that helped make her famous, because as many regular ladies soon discovered, it was just too hard to maintain without some professional help. Then there's the fashion. Each character had a slightly different style, but they were all pretty casual. They were trendy, but not too trendy. There was definitely no 90s grunge or club kid fashion on Friends. Lots of crop t-shirts, khaki pants, strappy black dresses, jeans, and running shoes. Not super cool, but people around the world started dressing like them anyway. In a 2014 Vice article, Clive Martin and Natalie Ola 
wrote that the show was supposed to be about sexy young urbanites, but the writers made no effort to really reflect the times. Instead, they gave the characters a cozy middle-aged take on modern culture that just didn't gel. In recent years, 90s fashions have made a comeback as a new generation of viewers have become obsessed with friends. Urban Outfitters, Gap, and American Eagle started to carry little white t-shirts like the ones worn on the show, along with chunky sold sneakers, fanny packs, and high-waisted mom jeans. Plus, there's plenty of tees with the Friends logo printed on them. When Netflix added all 10 seasons of Friends in 2015, people went crazy for the show. It's now watched in more than 130 countries in about 40 different languages. In 2018, it was the second most watched show on Netflix. And this has led to another unexpected impact. According to Kelsey Miller, Friends has become a popular tool for learning English. I was reading about people who were literally, you know, put in front of it as children, the way that, you know, we watch language learning tapes and things like that. And a lot of people learned English from that show. And a lot of people would use it also to perfect it, you know, their conversational English and things like that. Um, I found that really fascinating. In an episode of Ellen that aired in 2017, RM, a member of BTS, a seven-member South Korean boy band and K-pop phenomenon, revealed that he taught himself English by watching the iconic series. RM said he started watching the show with Korean subtitles before switching over to English subtitles and eventually removed all the subtitles completely. And he's not the only one. The New York Times reported in a 2017 feature that there are a whole bunch of major leaguers who learned English by watching the sitcom. And it's not limited to baseball. Legendary basketball player Paul Gasol credits friends for helping him learn the language as well. Kind of like a Rosetta Stone disguised as six 20-somethings hanging out in Manhattan. As Friends was regaining popularity in recent years, more attention has been paid to an older legal case involving the show, which made some pretty disturbing allegations about the writer's room. A writer's assistant who was fired after working on Friends for four months in 1999 filed a wrongful dismissal suit against the writers and producers of Friends in which she claimed she had been subjected to both racial and sexual harassment. In court documents, Amani Lyle stated that she was constantly being exposed to writers and producers making racist, sexist, and obscene statements and comments that had nothing to do with the show. Basically, all of Hollywood sided with the writers. They said that anything that takes place in the room has to take place in the room because it's what they refer to as creative necessity. Lyle detailed in court documents the kind of behavior she allegedly witnessed in the Friends writer's room. She said writers and producers would recount personal stories about their sex lives, pretend to masturbate, make racist jokes, and gossip about one of the cast members' alleged fertility problems. Lyle said one writer in particular would frequently fantasize about an episode where Joey would sneak up on Rachel in the shower and rape her. While Lyle's case was in court, it got very little coverage from the media. A story that ran in Entertainment Weekly in April 2004 
just before the Friends finale, summed up the case by saying Lyle was offended by off-color banter among the writers. In documents filed with the court, the defendants insisted if Lyle succeeded, it would be an assault on freedom of speech, destroy creative expression, and lead to censorship on a massive scale. A brief signed by more than 100 film and television writers, including Norman Lear and Larry David, said group writing requires an atmosphere of complete trust. Writers must feel not only that it is all right to fail, but also that they can share their most private and darkest thoughts without concern for ridicule, embarrassment, or legal accountability. In the end, the California Supreme Court sided with the writers, and it became known as the creative necessity defense. And that became something that was integrated into HR paperwork in basically any kind, you know, any creative industry, uh, education, journalism, everything like that. Now, just imagine that case today in light of the Me Too movement. Miller thought about it, too. Would the findings by the courts be the same? So, but looking through it through the eyes of the Me Too movement now, it's hard to imagine that the case would have ended the same way. Completely hard to imagine. And what's even more shocking is that so many people who have been vocal supporters of Me Too were people who actively opposed this woman, who put their names on letters that were, you know, presented by the entire Writers Guild saying that not only were the writers right, but she was absolutely wrong and it was outrageous what she was claiming. While researching for her book, Miller spoke with Lyle, who said the producers of Friends did reach out to apologize for their behavior. They knew it was wrong, but they were worried about the courts censoring the creative process. Since then, there's been a slow evolution by studios and networks to make an effort for gender parity and diversity in writers' rooms. In an article in The Hollywood Reporter from 2018, Liz Merriweather, creator of Fox's New Girl, agrees that there has been an evolution, albeit a long overdue one. So why is Friends so popular? How is a show that premiered almost three decades ago so influential today, even with its flaws? Kelsey Miller says Friends is like watching an old, outdated movie that brings you back to a simpler time. All its dated flaws are covered in thick layers of buttercream nostalgia. I really love the way young people watch it that way and that they really take a much sort of deeper view on it and they recognize the the problems with it while also appreciating it. And I think that appreciation comes, you know, not only from the fact that the writing is still quite strong, especially when you when you look at other shows from that era. Wow. It's like it's head and shoulder above. Um, But. The fact is, this is a show, ultimately, at its core, it's not about, like, the 90s. It's not about New York. It's about friendship. It's about friendship. That's it. Friends really is about friendship and about a time when it matters the most. When you left home, but before you've settled down to make your own family. That sweet spot when friends are your family. So what about a reboot? I think it would take extraordinary circumstances to get those people back in a room together. They don't have any reason to. And you know what? I really don't think, I'm going to just be real with you. I don't think we really want one if you really think of it. This is a show about a very specific time in life, which has long since passed. And 
we don't we don't want them to be you know hanging around the same places having you know being totally stunted having not moved on with their lives at all right you might not want to rule it out completely earlier this summer jennifer aniston appeared on the ellen show and said she would do a friends reboot if asked and she insists everyone else would be there as well Thanks for joining me on this look back at Friends. And thanks to Kelsey Miller for sharing her knowledge about the show. Her book is called I'll Be There For You, The One About Friends. And it's available now wherever you buy your books. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information.